Hello and welcome to this week's How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. In this week's show, Hannah McInnes meets author and activist Layla Saad, whose Instagram challenge, hashtag me and white supremacy, encouraged people to own up and share their racist behaviours. Thousands of people participated. And Layla's new workbook of the same name is essential reading for anyone who wants to understand and mitigate their own unconscious biases and challenge racism in the wider world. Leila, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've had a very busy schedule and one that's sort of mentally and emotionally quite exhausting, I imagine. So thank you. Uh, and your book, which I think published earlier this year, Me and White Supremacy, How to Recognise Your Privilege, Combat Racism and Change the World. Who did you write it for? <laughs> I often get asked the question, who is this book for? And I always say it's for everybody who has white privilege and not everybody who has white privilege will read this book. And so I wrote it for the people who want to be on the journey of anti-racism, who want to be on the right side of history, who are maybe scared, um, maybe confused, maybe um yeah, just feeling apprehensive, um, but they have white privilege and they understand that that means something. And so they want to begin the work. They want to begin doing the work. So there's lots I want to pick up on that, especially what white privilege is, essentially. But it wasn't initially a book. No, it was, it was an Instagram. Right. Yeah. It Tell was an Instagram challenge. How it came to life. Sure. So it was an Instagram challenge that I started almost a year after I had started doing public anti-racism work and writing about white supremacy. And I'd noticed a shift over the year over how people were able to hear conversations around racism. So people who were white, who had white privilege, they, at the beginning, when I started doing this work, were very resistant, very defensive, very upset. And about a year later, I noticed they were more open. And so I just, out of curiosity, was wondering what have they learned about themselves and white supremacy. And so I wrote down this list of different topics that I considered made up white supremacy and began this 28-day Instagram challenge for free just on social media, inviting people to do some reflective journaling about how racism shows up in their life, how they hold unconscious racist thoughts and beliefs, how they may have intentionally or unintentionally caused harm through racism. And it basically sparked this huge movement that thousands of people took part in. And after completing the challenge, I turned it into a free PDF workbook that I just self-published. And that also went very viral. Um, almost 100,000 people downloaded it in six months. Did that surprise you? Um, it, it did. It, it did. Well, and it did and it didn't. You? Yeah. So it, it didn't because I because we had so many people do the original Instagram challenge. But to go from what was just an Instagram challenge to a book that was now being used so widely. Um, it was it, it was surprising. Yeah. Especially given the title, which you acknowledge yourself right. is bold, potentially controversial. Yes. Um, and something that might be off-putting. Me and white supremacy, big, right. bold words. Why did you decide to go with that? It had to be that. It, we had to name it directly. We had to talk about this thing 
with the name that it is and not with something else that would make it easier or safer or more palatable for people. You know, I often compare it to, you know, how in Harry Potter, they don't want to say Lord Voldemort. And if we can't talk about it, we create a lot of fear around it and we think it's something else and it's always lurking in the shadows. Um, I want people to take ownership of understanding you have been conditioned into a system of white supremacy and you benefit from this system and this is the way that it shows up in your life. Because people often associate white supremacy with, yeah. well, Charlottesville now, yes. but far-right extremist views. Right. And that's, that's not what it is, you And that's saying. a very small group of individuals. And if white supremacy and racism only belongs to that very small group of individuals, why is it then that everyday people of colour are still experiencing racism? So what is white supremacy? So white supremacy is this uh, system, it's an institution, it's a paradigm, it's a way of thinking that comes from a seed belief. And that belief is that people who are white are supreme, are superior to people of other races and therefore deserve to dominate over those people. And so we've seen that throughout history in modern day, through colonization, through enslavement, through land theft, through racist laws. But we also see it in very subtle ways every single day where somebody says something or somebody does something in a way that causes people of color to experience harm. And I talk about white privilege in the book, and white privilege is a term that was coined by a white woman, actually, called Peggy McIntosh, a feminist. Um, she wrote a paper called White Privilege and Male Privilege, and then uh, turned that essay into what is now famously known as the Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack essay. And she lays out 50 ways that white privilege shows up. And she defines it as this package of unearned assets that you can count on cashing in each day. And what that means is every day as you move throughout your life, in very small ways, you are being privileged in a way that people of color are not. So for some examples, someone who has your hair and someone who has my hair, it's very easy for you to find a hair salon anywhere to do your hair. For me, I have to specifically go and find people who can do my hair. Um, in shops, I remember growing up, now we have now we have so many ranges of foundations and concealers for all skin tones. That wasn't up until very recently. Um, growing up, most of the time I had to find out of the few shades that were available to me and oftentimes my skin just looked very gray <laughs> so, do you know what I mean so so that's these are small examples of ways society privileges white people in a way it doesn't privilege people of color and in terms of you know coming back to asking who it's for mm-hmm. I was really interested that the greater problem or the people that it's for are the are the people who think this is not for me. Everybody looks at that and says, oh, that's no, no, that's not for me. I'm not racist. I can't pick that book up. It's the white moderate that you quote Martin Luther King, I think. Um, And he says, the shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Right. Because for me, I'm not spending time with people who are proudly racist. Those are not the people around me. The people that I, who are around me are, the, are the, the good ones, quote unquote, are the ones who consider themselves the allies. But because that's how they consider themselves, they don't self-examine the ways that they are also complicit in causing harm. And so I talk about in the book, as an example, one of my closest best friends was a white woman. You know, when I started talking about racism, she, she disengaged from our friendship. She 
basically went quiet, didn't check in on me, didn't ask anything. We didn't have any conversations around this. And this was a very good white person. Um, and this was a very hard conversation for her to have. And it, it basically ended our friendship. Uh, that was more painful to me than somebody calling me a racial slur. And there's also the thing that those sorts of people, us people who think it doesn't involve them, yeah. feel, oh, I, di- I didn't cause this. This isn't yeah. this isn't my problem. That's not the case. Again, that's what it's important for well, us to it's, examine. It's important to understand that nobody who is alive today created any of this. But if you are white or look white, you benefit from it and you uphold it as well, whether actively or inactively. So actively through acts of tone policing. So that's one of the things I talk yeah. about in the book where people who are white will dictate to people of color ha- what tone we are supposed to use when when we when we talk especially when we talk about racism and that's a way of sort of it's aggressing right it's saying i am the standard for what is civilized don't get so angry don't get so angry basically disengage from your emotions about being harmed and present this to me in a way that makes me comfortable yeah. you know that's that's very it's not nice, you know. I don't yeah, know how yeah. Else to I, say I can't it, remember right? how you, you phrase it brilliant when you say if you've been wronged, then you're yeah. going to speak passionately about about that. it, yeah. right? And and requiring people not to speak passionately about it is requiring them not to be human. Um, so that's a way that you actively do so, but you may inactively do so by white silence. You know, seeing things happening and just not saying a word, and hoping that somebody else calls it out or points it out or says something, not recognizing that you are that someone else. It's on you and that your silence isn't neutral. Yeah. And, yeah. and everybody's reaction is, oh, oh, what can I do? What, yes. what can I do? Yeah. I mean, the, it's Robin DiAngelo isn't it, who writes mm-hmm. your foreword and says, my answer to what can I do would be read this book, use this book. Yeah. But is that was that your aim that when people are thinking, OK, what can I do? Then they turn to your book. You know, there's many, the work of dismantling white supremacism is being done by so many people around the world in different forms. And this is this is one way that you can begin. And what this particular book is about is about turning within and taking responsibility for the one person you have control over, which is yourself. You can influence other people, your children, your spouse, your parents, but you can't control them. But it's you that you can. And so that's my contribution to this movement and to this work. But I also think without doing any self-reflective work, any anti-racism work that you do has the potential to do harm. And so I talk about in the week on allyship in the book, I talk about some ways that people think that they're showing up in allyship but they're actually causing harm. This is optical. Optical allyship, allyship. you know, things like tokenism, Mm. you know, which is, you know, if a company we see gets called out because they don't have enough diversity and their quick fix is, we'll just do another photo shoot, you know, and bring in some people of color. And now, da-da, we solved racism, we are diverse. Uh, There was no systemic institutional change that happened within the company. And, And so that's not doing the work. That's putting a Band-Aid on something and hoping that everyone will think everything's okay now. And doing the work is, one, reading the book, which you say is hard, it's painful, yeah. messy, challenging, overwhelming, intimidating, yeah. and not rewarding. Yeah. But that's the important part of the process. Yeah, yeah. And that reward, 
isn't going to look like what we usually see when we're doing any kind of self-reflective or personal growth or transformation work. The reward at the other side is that if you're actually doing the work, you recognize you're going to make you have to going to you're going to have to make some hard decisions in your life about showing up differently, about releasing some things, about giving up some things so that people of color can, you know, have more equity, can have more things. And so it might mean that you're going to have difficult conversations with the other white people in your life. You know, I was just speaking with somebody and they said, I've just been telling people to read your book, but I'm actually going to like actually insist that they that they do it. And I'm really scared to ask them to do it because up until this point, we haven't talked about racism in our friendship. Because it's not actually reading your book. It's, it's doing. doing. It's a doing book. It's very much a doing Over book. Over 28 days. Yes. Over 28 days is the 28 days is the process, but you don't have to squeeze it into 28 days because anti-racism is a lifelong journey. Mm. And this work requires you to consider anti-racism as not something you do. You put aside 28 days and do the work and yes, then go back to your normal life, right? It's something that has to become a practice in your life. And also some days take longer to process. So how... I feel like this is the wrong question too, but you you do address it in the book. To become a true ally, not an optical ally, ally, what are the things people should be doing? A lifelong, true, genuine ally. I think the first thing is to actually release the idea that you become an ally. Yeah. And instead, switch your focus to practicing allyship as a practice that you hit reset every morning and you begin the practice of allyship every single day because you don't get to self-define as an ally it's the people towards whom you're being an ally too can say yes they're an ally of mine and you also could be an ally of mine but not an ally of another person of color right it's earned individually actually you can't say i'm an ally to all black people because black people are not a monolith and we have different needs and desires but it's it is really about considering this as a practice thinking about it in terms of not reaching an end destination but actually becoming a part of how you live your life. One of the things that I suppose I found the most difficult to get my head around in some ways was the cultural appropriation and to try and distinguish between appreciation Mm -hmm. and appropriation Mm -hmm. and how I can appreciate, um, you know, uh, music or or fashion or various things like that without it being appropriated or or what you call you say tokenizing and exoticizing right fetishizing yes so how is that there must be a way you know you appreciate yeah the music or so what i say to people in in that chapter when i talk about cultural appropriation is remove the idea that there's going to be one answer for everything because you can ask two different people who belong to the same culture whether something is an appropriation or an appreciation and they might have two different answers because nobody owns the culture Mm. right so it's not about am i is it appropriation or isn't it but rather it's about understanding what is the relationship between my culture and that culture is the context of that relationship has there been enslavement has there been colonization has there been land theft has there been discrimination if there has it means that we're not in a relationship where the two cultures are equal we're in a relationship where one of them is dominant and one of them is not 
Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because when you're saying this, one of the most important problems is a lack of understanding, lack of education. Lack of, like, not having learned history, right? Not having learned any history. And so not knowing that when you are being told that something you're doing is appropriative it's not because people don't want you to have something it's because there's been a whole history of your culture taking from that culture often violently and not taking any accountability for what's happened and so when you when we talk about cultural appropriation I often say look if a bully is taking something from a victim we can't the bully can't say we're sharing this is sharing, right? <laughs> because it doesn't work the other way around. The victim can't say something from the bully and say, We're, this is sharing. Yeah, and I, I've heard you say, I'm not quite sure why, I, I, it could be in the book, but actually there's also a sense that the bully has a fear that it's going to switch. That's right. And that's a completely unfounded right, fear. Right, right, right. But it's, it's very real. And I think it's guilt. I think there's an underlying knowing at a deep, at a deeper level and maybe a collective level of knowing that there has been deep harm that has been caused and that that must that must result in people feeling very angry and possibly wanting retribution and so the fear is if i admit to having these thoughts or these feelings which are racist the backlash is going to be it's going to be done to me and what i say to that is it, what i say to that is that's how that's that's what white supremacy has taught you about people of color, that that's what we want, that we want retribution and not equality and not equity. Um, and that's not what that's not what I want, for sure. I mean, I can't, talk, I can't talk for any other person of color, but I can say that I'm doing this work because I believe that we all deserve to actually experience living in a world where we know that there is only one race, the human race, and we are all treated the same. One of the other things that you write about white feminism, yeah. which you say is the poison of white feminism, uh, and and the from the beginning the feminist movement has been an extension of white supremacy. Right. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. So the feminist movement has often only been about gender, and and about the experience of being oppressed or marginalized or discriminated against because of gender because of being a woman and when women of color have said we also experience racism and we experience it from you white women white women have often said let's not talk about that right now let's all just deal with this gender thing and then we'll deal with the racism thing and so that asks me as a woman of color, as a black woman, to treat myself as half a person. And I always say, look, I'm not a woman and then black. I'm a black woman simultaneously. And if the feminist movement isn't anti-racist, then it's just not for me. And that means it's only for gender. And, and the standard of what being a woman is, is a white woman. And so, and so going back to that definition of what is white supremacy, 
it's that white people are superior and their needs come first. And the antidote is intersectionality, you say? Yes. And when I talk about intersectionality, I'm talking about it from the genesis, the root of where it comes from, which is the work of Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who in her work really was talking about how black women specifically experience being uh, uh, not not being seen as both black and woman simultaneously. It's either you're a woman or either you're black. And so she, in her in her work around this, it came from a case that she was working on, basically, where black women who um, were not able to get jobs at this particular company were trying to sue and say, look, it's because we're black women. And the company said, look, well, we hire black people, and they were men, and we hire women and they were white. So you can't say that we exclude based on you being black women. And it's like, no, there's a gap yeah. where the intersection of being black and woman means you are ignored. And so that's when I talk about intersectionality, that's what I'm talking about. It's that if feminism doesn't center black women who are often the most marginalized, then it's not for all women. It's only for white women. Do you feel any optimism or sense that you're witnessing a time of change now in all of this? I try and approach my work from a sense of realism yeah. and faith. Mm-hmm. So I think optimism is, it, it can be dangerous. Uh, I think, you know, when we, you know, just to shift it to the United States, I mean, people when Barack Obama was president had that sense of optimism. We've solved racism. We now have a black president. This yeah. It can only get better from here. And it was a huge slap in the face. When because people thought, job done. That's it. He's arrived. It's a, it, yeah. That's it. And we can, it can only go up from here. Yeah. And it went completely the other way in a way yeah. that we haven't seen in history. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so I think optimism can be dangerous. Yeah. I think it's important to be realistic. And that's when I talk about being realistic, I'm talking about the fact that most people are not going to want to do this work. That is realistic. Because like we said, it's hard, it's challenging, it's intimidated, you're feeling unrewarded. And if you have privilege, there's very little incentive to want to lose it. So it's important for me to be realistic that, yes, it reached so many people and so on and so forth, but many people will buy the book, skim the book, not do the work. What feedback have you had from people who you feel have done the work? They have said two things. This is the hardest, most gut-wrenching work I've ever done. And it gave me back my humanity. And that's where I get my faith from. That when people do the work and they experience what it feels like to actually practice anti-racism and to live differently, that there is no other feeling like that. There is no other feeling than knowing that I don't have to be scared of owning my privilege or owning that I have these racist thoughts and beliefs. I don't have to worry about being perfect and about being seen as a good person by the rest of the world. I can own all of this and I can show up differently for people of color. And so I put my faith in the people who will do the work, that they be empowered to be change agents in their communities and that they have a ripple effect in their communities. 
I feel like it's such a good place to end <laughs> because it's the place where people listening go, right, I need to race up and pick it up. But I do just want to ask about uh, colour blindness yeah. because that's such an important part of it and you hear it so often. When people, oh, I, I, don't, I don't see that. It's, yeah. it's not a problem. Yeah. And, I mean, you say it's just so naive to say by not seeing a problem does not make it go away. Right. I was reading a quote, um, reading the, uh, about the dark fantastic, which I think is by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, I hope that's the right name. And there was a quote in, in it by Toni Morrison. And she was talking about how basically being colorblind is seen as the graceful, liberal, progressive thing to do. It's that that's how we solve racism is to act like we don't see color. And that's the apathetic thing that Martin Luther King was talking about, right. the white moderate. Who- well, well, it's also, it's just very misguided. It's very misguided. We can't we, we biologically there is only one human race but socially we have constructed race and it means something in that construction it's not just that there are different people of different colors and they're all the same no it's that there's different people of different colors and some of them are more superior to others and so we have to be able to look at that we have to be able to look at not the fact that people are different colors but that it means something that we have made it mean something in society, that those who are white are privileged in ways that people of color are not. And unless we are willing to see color, quote unquote, then we cannot see racism. And that's a really clever way to try and protect yourself from having to look at any of this. I think, as I said to you at the beginning, before we started recording, it's so hard because this is not a quick fix. So to say we can have a 30-minute podcast, I do not want people to listen to this and think, great, I've listened to the podcast, now I've got the message. Clearly, they need to read the book and and do the work. But I hope that it's, well, touching on the surface of it is still always... A beneficial yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really encourage people who's maybe feeling curious, maybe even feeling a little bit defensive to sit in that and to, you know, just take the first step, which Particularly is Particularly those feeling defensive. Defensive. Pick up the book. I I my intention with this book is not to condone or atta- to to attack. It's not to attack. It's to invite. It's to give you an opportunity to learn something that you haven't learned before, to give you an insight that you don't have so that you can see the world in a wider way than you have seen it before. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, it's, it is hard work and it is challenging, but it's also necessary. We are living in times that are very challenging and we need courageous people who are willing to show up in ways that are out of their comfort zones. So whatever that feeling is, whether it's fear or defensiveness, know that, first of all, I expect it. (laughs) I don't expect, I said to someone just earlier, look, if you introduce this work to someone, their first reaction is going to be, this doesn't apply to me. And that's what I expect. But keep having the conversation and maybe they, they will take the first step. Thank you so much indeed. This week's podcast starred Layla Saad and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Dana Outcolt and me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Doughty. As ever, if you enjoyed this week's show, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. How To Academy is hosting live streams with some of the world's biggest thinkers during lockdown to keep you entertained and stimulated. And you can find them all for free at howtoacademy.com. Stay safe and thanks for listening.